Will Lori Vallow and Chad DeBell have separate trials? Judge Boyce is going to rule on the issue. The Alec Murdoch trial goes off the rails. Alec Baldwin pleads not guilty. Does video in the Maddie Brooks case exonerate the defendants? Hmm. Former movie mogul got sentenced yesterday. And then our dumb criminal of the day. What's shocking is he's not from Florida. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill before we can get started. Subscribe if you haven't, like if you do, leave me a comment, hit that little bell, and remember you can listen to us on any of your favorite podcasting apps. All right, let's support the people that support Crime Talk. Go to crimetalksearch.com, sign up for a background subscription service today. You're going to be surprised at how easy and quick this works. You literally can search anyone in the United States. You type in their name, you respond to a couple of questions, and then a report is literally generated while you wait and you're gonna get information as to whether they're married, divorced, do they have bankruptcies, do they have liens against them, do they have a criminal record? Are they on one of those public registries? That's right, go to crimetalksearch.com. Listen, in today's world, it is dating malpractice if you do not check somebody out. A quick Google search is not enough. You need all that information conveniently located in one place. Go to crimetalksearch.com. You'll be happy you did. All right, let's go ahead and open the record for the docket for February 24th, 2023. First, Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. As most people know, they're charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder for the deaths of seven-year-old Joshua J.J. Vallow, 16-year-old Tylee Ryan, Lori's children, with Chad's previous wife, Tammy Daybell. Their trial is scheduled to begin on April 3rd in Ada County, but attorney John Pryor, Chad Daybell's attorney, has asked the district court judge, Stephen Boyce, to sever the cases yet again. Pryor said, listen, judge, the trial is going to start in 21 business days. This was as of yesterday. And to date, unless he's mistaken, there is DNA evidence that is still outstanding that he does not have within his possession. He says that if you make me go to trial, I will not be prepared on that day. Now, he says once he receives the DNA analysis, he and his team do not have sufficient time to look to review it, evaluate it, have it retested if necessary. It simply doesn't have enough time to do it. Apparently, some hair is being tested at a private lab because the Idaho State Lab could not sufficiently test it in a timely manner. That's according to the district attorneys yesterday. The district attorney said they expect the DNA results on Thursday, which would be yesterday or maybe next week, it's unclear. But we don't have the results as of yet, and we don't know whether they are going to be able to obtain anything from those testing results. We just know that they have the ability to test the hair in a more extensive manner than the state lab. Hmm. Why is this now just getting done? Why did they wait? This is the hair, remember, ladies and gentlemen, that they found when they were doing some other testing. But why did they wait until four months before trial to test that? I totally blame the prosecution. They do this, at least where I come from, the labs are so busy these days with DNAs, testing, and what have you, they simply don't have the time. So what do they do? They wait 
until the case is set for trial to do any further testing. Sounds like that's what they're doing in Idaho as well. So uh, John Pryor, Chad DeBell's attorney, has argued they'd only received the additional evidence from the prosecutors, and he doesn't have enough time, obviously, to go through it. He accused the prosecutors of playing catch-me-if-you-can type of games and says that they are not being forthcoming when he asks questions. He said, quote, either they're trying to sandbag me or there's a lot of incompetence and nobody's watching or directing the ship over there when referring to the prosecution. And he said, judge, for you to punish me and make me and Mr. Daybell go through all this evidence at the last minute because they can't get their act together, he says it's not his fault. And he's kind of got a little bit of a point there. Well, the prosecutors apparently pushed back and said, hey, Mr. Pryor's exaggerating the size of all this evidence and the time, etc." And they admitted that some items weren't turned over to him up until the past few weeks because they found these items during trial preparation, which makes you think three years into it and you're just finally now looking at some of the evidence. What is going on? Anyway, the prosecution says, hey, this a lot of this evidence has been available for inspection since January of 2021. And they said, hey, it's the defendant's fault, and they're waiting till the eve of trial to raise these issues. Hmm. Last time I recall, what is that case? Oh, yeah, Brady v. Maryland. Prosecution has duty to turn everything over within their care, control, possession, anyone that immediately reports to that district attorney. And you can't piecemeal it. You got to turn it all over. Just so frustrating. And I get, I get it. I understand the frustration for both sides. But everybody's entitled to have the information. And to delay it and to do it right at the very end, it's not fair to anybody. Because now it puts the judge in the position where he could have to impose sanctions against the prosecution. But what if that information is exculpatory, which is beneficial to the defense? It'd be a lot easier if the prosecution wasn't so worried about nickel and diming their case and actually just do justice. But that's just me. Anyway, the prosecutor said, hey, they could have come and looked at all this stuff for a long time, last two years, and they didn't do it. Um, once again, you're assuming everything's been turned over unless you specifically have to go see the physical evidence. But hey, what can you do? Anyway, Judge Boyce did not rule on the motion to sever the case, but said that he will issue a written order. My guess is the judge will say, Mr. Mr. Pryor, be prepared to go to trial uh, in 21 days. Actually, now it's 20 days, and um, we'll deal with this as we go along. We still don't know if he has a second chair that he needs, but he says he's not ready, which implicates Sixth Amendment right to counsel issues. So the whole thing is just a hot mess. It really, really is. Anyway, the rest of the hearing, attorneys for um, Chad and Lori DeBell, said that they were not going to use mental health as a defense during the guilt phase of the trial, but that they would discuss it in the penalty phase. The defense has been saying this for all for as long as I can recall. In the death penalty cases, if the jury finds a defendant guilty, the trial then proceeds obviously to a penalty phase where the argument of witnesses and others are presented before a sentence is actually issued by the jury. Prosecutors seemed more concerned, obviously, with the mental health defense as it relates to Lori Vallow. Hmm, why? Oh, that's right, because she was found to be incompetent for at least 10 months, and the issue was raised again just this past fall. So, yeah, but the defense has already said for Lori Vallow they're not going to raise that because she didn't do anything wrong. 
as you may recall from her alibi statement, she was saying I was with Chad DeBell and others. And um, hey, if Alex Cox, my brother, killed these kids, which basically is their theory, which I've said all along was going to be the defense, what does she need to raise mental health issues for? Mental health, that's saying I did something wrong. It's basically like an affirmative defense. I did it, but I was crazy. She's saying she didn't do it. Puts the prosecution in kind of a little bind, doesn't it? Because when you say somebody conspired, you have to establish a conspiracy and let everybody know the object of the conspiracy that they all intended to do something. We'll have to wait and see. Anyway, the state intends to discuss these issues regarding her beliefs during the guilt phase. And um, the uh, prosecutions are concerned the defense may then open the door to argumental health as a defense. Mr. Archibald responded that every mental health expert who has evaluated Lori has said she does have a mental illness and uh, some question her competency to stand trial even as of right now. Mr. Archibald said that the mental health evidence we intend to present is if she is convicted. She believes she will not be convicted, so the mental health evidence should not be presented, Mr. Archibald explained. Lori's defense attorneys noted their witnesses during the guilt phase of the new trial were very few. Judge Boyce is in a tight spot here. Like I said, you have a defendant who says he's not ready. This decision implicates Sixth Amendment right to counsel, effective assistance of counsel, and the court needs to balance that with the state's desire to try Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell together. Frankly, the state should just say, let's try them all. Let's do them. We'll do it anyway. I've said this all along. The prosecution to say, Judge, you tell us where, you tell us when, we'll have our witnesses. We will gladly accept the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and we will try this case because that's what justice requires. Instead, the prosecution is just, just nickel and dime in this thing, saying it's too expensive, and in the process of trying to do that, have mucked the whole thing up. We'll see if Judge Boyce can uh, get his arms around this and uh, try to make it right. We'll have to wait and see. Next on the docket, Alec Murdoch. Yes, he's still on the witness stand by the time that we are doing this video. The cross-examination by the government had just ended and redirect is going on. Listen, Alec Murdoch got up on the stand. Let me summarize it for you real quick. He got up on the stand. He said, I stole everybody's money. I've lied to everybody that he's loved friends, family, business partners, clients, and he stole their money, but he did not kill his wife and kids. The prosecution got up on cross-examination and said, you stole all this money, and he agreed. And then he gave all this long-winded explanation, probably one of the worst cross-examinations I've seen in a long, long time. Cross-examination is supposed to be crisp, clear, yes, no type of answers. The person asking the question, the attorney in this particular case, should be able to control the witness. Prosecution did not control Alec Murdoch. Now, did he help himself by testifying? I don't know. Here's closing arguments. Ladies and gentlemen, prosecution's closing argument. He lied, he lied, he lied. Sure, we don't have him putting himself behind the weapon, but did we mention he's a liar? Find him guilty of the death of Paul and Maggie. The defense closing argument is simple. Ladies and gentlemen, he got up on the witness stand, something he didn't have to do. He told everybody what he did, and he's not proud of it. He lied. He stole money. Didn't have to do it. But he got up there and said, I didn't kill my wife and kid. Find him not guilty. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Hopefully the judge is going to be about 30 minutes uh, for closing. Somehow I think he's going to give them each a day, and they're going to go over everything all over again. Next on the docket, Alec Baldwin says, not guilty. 
That's right. Alec Baldwin pled not guilty Thursday to involuntary manslaughter in the 2021 onset shooting that killed Rust movie cinematographer Helena Hutchins and wounded director Joel Souza. Now, Mr. Baldwin also filed a waiver to skip a court appearance scheduled for Friday. And the New Mexico First Judicial District Judge Mary Marlowe Summer accepted the waiver and ordered him released on his own recognizance with some conditions. Those conditions are obey all laws, don't possess any firearms or other dangerous weapons, do not consume alcohol, and maintain contact with his attorney. He is permitted contact with other witnesses in this case, as long as that contact is limited to completing the movie Rust. Work on the film is to resume this spring as long as he does not discuss the case with any of the witnesses. Yeah, like that's going to happen. Um, now, Baldwin and uh, the armor, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, uh, was also charged um, with the weapon used on the set and both the charge with involuntary manslaughter. Assistant Director David Halls, a third crew member, uh, has reportedly agreed to a plea deal on a misdemeanor count, and Halls handed the weapon to Baldwin during their rehearsal, telling Alec Baldwin it was safe with no live ammunition. Obviously, that was mistaken. A few minutes later, Baldwin pointed the gun toward the camera while practicing a draw. The gun was fired, striking Elena Hutchins and Souza. Baldwin says he did not pull the trigger, although ballistic experts have said the gun could not have gone off just by itself. Earlier in this week, the district attorney, kind of with a red face, had to drop a gun enhancement charge that could have resulted in mandatory prison time if Mr. Baldwin and the uh, armorer were convicted. Good lawyering on the part of Mr. Baldwin, for sure. Kind of surprising the prosecutor didn't pick that up after a year of investigating the case. Oh, that statute wasn't in effect at the time. Oh, darn. Next on the docket, the Maddie Brooks case. So Maddie Brooks, who is a Louisiana State University student, and her alleged rapists were seen arguing as she stepped out of their car moments before she was fatally struck by another car. Now, this is according to a video. The footage was taken by one of the men, one of the defendants, and it was released by their defense attorney last week. The attorney claims that the 29-second clips exonerates their clients. The clip states, I'm sorry that I offended you that bad, Brooks said from the middle seat in the back of the car, according to this video, from their encounter they had on January 15th. Take her home, one of the men off camera responds to the others. Get out, get out. I will Uber on my own she said to the man sitting next to her, who stepped out of the car so that she could exit out of the car. The 19-year-old college sophomore drew out the word I and paused mid-sentence between I will and Uber on my own in her drunken speech. I'm sorry that it hurt your feelings, Brooks also said in the snippet. She got out of the car and called the driver, Kaysen Carver Gay, and she left, according to the report. Now, defense attorney said the video shows that Brooks had consensual sex with two of the men and that she was not sexually assaulted. Speaking and engaging in conversation using very vulgar language to the driver of the vehicle, the attorney says, is sufficient to show that it was consensual. Insulting the driver of the vehicle, implying that the driver of the vehicle is not straight, based on him not wanting to engage in certain activities, is what the defense is arguing. It doesn't put anyone in the best light, but again, not being put in the best light isn't the same thing as a sexual assault. However, 
Brooks' blood alcohol content was 0.319, nearly four times the legal limit at the time of the alleged sex act. Prosecutors said the student was too drunk to consent and charged 18-year-old Kayvon DeAndre Washington and a 17-year-old boy who has not yet been identified because he is a minor. With the third-degree rape charge, Carver, also 18, and a fourth passenger, 28-year-old Everett Lee, were each charged with principal to third-degree rape, meaning they witnessed but did not participate in the sexual assault. A lawyer for Brooks' family said the teens sexually assaulted her without a doubt, and under Louisiana law, this is rape. We were deeply offended by blaming the victim and statements regarding if she hadn't been hit, she wouldn't be complaining of a thing. We thought that was offensive and plain wrong, the family member said. The men's defense attorneys reportedly have even more video footage taken by their clients of that night, but not have not released that to the public as of yet. They claim the additional footage shows the minor and Washington receiving verbal consent for sex from Ms. Brooks. Now, District Court Judge Brad Myers, who saw the videos, says that they actually support the prosecution's theory of the case. Anyway, he said that at a bond hearing that one clip depicted one of the suspects callously laughing at Brooks, while another showed her falling off and needing help to stand up. The judge said, the evidence to me is clear, Myers said at a bond hearing. Next on the docket, remember that former movie mogul who's had problems in New York and L.A. in there in California? That's right. We'll just refer to him as the former movie mogul. He was sentenced to 16 years in state prison yesterday. Um, he was convicted in December of three counts of sexual assault stemming from allegations by a model that he attacked her in a hotel room back in 2013. The district attorney said in his statement that the former movie mogul's victims exhibited extraordinary bravery in a case that put them in the national spotlight. Jurors deliberated for 10 days before finding the former movie mogul, who's 70 years old, guilty of one count of forcible rape, one count of forced oral copulation, and one count of sexual penetration by a foreign object. The counts that the former movie mogul was convicted of stem from an assault of a Russian-Italian model for which the movie mogul attacked her at the Mr. C Hotel in Beverly Hills after she returned to her room following a day at a film festival back in 2013. Now, remember, the former movie mogul is serving a 23-year sentence after being convicted of two crimes of a sexual nature in New York in 2020. And finally, today, our dumb criminal of the day. What's surprising, not that somebody's dumb and committing illegal acts, but that they're not from Florida. Good job, Frank. Anyway, a New Jersey man who apparently gambled on not getting caught took a new pickup truck from, for a test drive and was arrested at a casino about 40 miles away. Police in Stafford Township alleged that Jason D'Angelo took a 2023 white GMC Sierra from a dealership around 11 a.m. Saturday and never returned the car. Police say the dealership called the police about 8.15 p.m. A short time later, the vehicle was observed by the Tuckerton Borough Police Department on Route 539, and they attempted to stop the vehicle. The vehicle didn't stop and drove south on the parkway. The police did not pursue the vehicle any further for safety reasons. Anyway, the Stafford Township Police Department notes it was again able to locate the vehicle and Mr. D'Angelo, who were in the Atlantic City area near the Tropicana Casino. I bet it was OnStar that got him. 
Anyway, police say the pickup truck was found in the casino parking lot and Mr. D'Angelo was arrested inside the casino without incident. He was charged with third-degree unlawful taking of means of conveyance. Don't you love lawyer talk? Unlawful taking of a means of conveyance, also known in most states as motor vehicle theft, as well as being charged with second-degree eluding. I guess he thought it really wasn't a crime if he didn't have the intent to permanently deprive. Hmm. Anyway, he didn't take it back. That's motor vehicle theft. Or taking something that has a means of conveyance. Anyway, hey, have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next time at Crime Talk.